wonderful geeky people, welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here again with yet another hour of geeky news, views and reviews. And I should warn you in advance, the views expressed in one segment of this show this week are a little strident. That's because I'm going to talk about AI art and it's, an, it's, it's a thing that I feel very, very strongly about. I've actually listened to the recording I did a couple of times back, I think I may have gone a little bit far, but I also think I stand by everything that you're about to hear me say later in the show. So I'm leaving it there. But just letting you know that, yeah, I know, I know, I feel strongly about it. I may have gone a bit over the top. And now I've made you all breathless with anticipation for that. I'm going to talk about something completely different because of course I am. After all, everything is in the anticipation. Oh, such a good joke. Yes, I have recently rewatched the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And do you know what? I didn't think it would hold up because bits of it are extremely questionable. But in fact, if you accept that they are using language that was acceptable at the time and used by people who would identify by those terms at the time, I think it does hold up. The actual message that is at the core of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think is solid. And some of the tunes are absolutely banging. So, you know, watch with caution if you've never seen it before, but understand that the motivations of everyone involved were good. You know, now I think about it, I might need to do a show about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But that is a subject for another time. Because before we do anything else, we're going to go and take a look at... It's been a while since we did a really good roundup of stuff that's going on in space right now. So I'm just going to give you some headlines. Uh, well, I won't go into detail on any of this. We may come back to some of this in a future show. Um, so what's going on in space? Well, a new radar system has been used to take the most detailed images of the moon that have ever been taken from Earth. Uh, there's a particularly striking image of the Tycho crater in the southern lunar hemisphere. And it's been taken by a prototype radar system at the National Science Foundation's Green Bank Telescope. The system is going to be used to spot faraway asteroids that could pose a threat to Earth. And you know how I feel about planetary defence. So I'm pleased that there's... And just go, go to Google. I can't do show notes again this week, but just go to Google and Google the, uh, some just Google high resolution radar picture of moon, something like that. The, the pictures are absolutely stunning. They are so clear. I mean, I spend a reasonable amount of time looking at the moon through a telescope, and I thought I'd seen detail on the moon. I really haven't. These radar images are just incredible. So, very, very impressive stuff. Um, also, the International Space Station is coming to the end of its life, but it's getting some upgrades. Basically, the solar panels that have been powering the International Space Station were designed to have a service life of 15 years, because, to be frank, nobody thought the International Space Station was going to last that long. They've actually been powering the station for well over 20 years. I mean, we're knocking into... Uh, 
It must be nearly 23, 24 years they've been operational now. So they're going to get a new set. They're not taking the old ones down. What would be the point? Uh, there will be a spacewalk. Uh, in fact, it may have happened last Friday uh, to install mounting platforms so that new solar panels can be fitted. Now, what will happen to them? Because presumably they'll still have some service life left when the station is decommissioned in about six or seven years time. Whether they'll be recycled and reused and moved to something else that's going on in space, I do not know. But I'm glad that the International Space Station is still being well maintained and well used. Uh, I'm very fond of the International Space Station. I remember it being launched. And uh, I still like what it stands for. The, the, the spirit of cooperation between the West and the East, particularly NASA and Roscosmos, um, that's obviously fallen by the wayside. But it is still a powerful symbol of international cooperation because it's not just everybody thinks that everything that happens in space is just NASA. And it isn't the International Space Station. Yeah, NASA and Roscosmos are the, the major partners and NASA is very definitely the senior partner. But that doesn't mean that the contributions from ESA and JAXA, that's the Japanese space agency, and you know, the Canadian space agency, and individual space agencies from countries that are also part of the European Space Agency, like Italy and the UK and Germany. All of these contributions have been vital to not just the existence of the International Space Station, but to the work that it has done. So hoorah for the International Space Station. I look forward to it getting a new solar powered hat. Slightly less positive is that India's uh, Venus Orbiter mission, um, uh, which, look, its name's in Hindi, so I apologise to everybody, okay? If you are a Hindi speaker, uh, just forgive me, okay? The mission is called Shukrayan, I think, um, but it looks as though that's going to be delayed. Uh, the Indian Space Research Organisation uh, has announced that the, the mission that I'm not going to name again uh, was supposed to be launching in 2024 to send a, a, an orbiter to orbit Venus, because that's what orbiters do, and, you know, study the planet, study the atmosphere, that kind of thing. It looks as though that's going to be a delayed because, and I find this one quite odd, they are saying that their launch has not yet received official approval from the Indian government and that this may delay the launch from 2024 until 2031. Now, if that seems like a long time, it's not as though they can just go when they get a, a yes. Uh, planets aren't stationary objects. They move in elliptical orbits around the sun and you've got to time your mission for when the planets are in the same place. So I suspect if they miss their launch window in 2024, Earth and Venus will not be in an appropriate position relative to each other to make a, the launch feasible until 2031. Uh, that's orbital mechanics for you. It's a nuisance. Uh, it's why you can't just up and go to Mars whenever you feel like it either. So that's bad news. And just before anybody asks why India has a space program when it's regarded as a less developed nation, well, you know what? Good, on, good for them, frankly. 
Uh, I admire their ambition, and I wish that's why they had a space program. Uh, but it's not, really, is it? Um, most small or less wealthy countries that have space programs have space programs so that they can develop ballistic missile systems without people asking them why they're developing ballistic missile systems. And here in the West, we cannot look askance at that because that's exactly what we did. There's a reason that, uh, the Americans got Werner von Braun and his um, formerly SS associates out of Germany at the end of World War II. And it wasn't because they wanted to go to the moon. Von Braun wanted to go to the moon, which is why he went with the Americans. The Americans wanted missiles that could hit Russia. Von Braun, of course, gave them both. So yay him. And if whilst using space exploration as a cover for developing weapons, countries like India can actually do some good science. Brilliant. Good. At least some good comes out of this ridiculous arms race. And as I say, we cannot look askance at that. Britain was involved in developing space rockets because they were developing missiles. So did America. So did Russia. So did pretty much anybody else with a space program. So, you know, it's not always clean, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, and speaking of things that are always clean, Elon Musk's SpaceX says it is getting closer to its first orbital launch of their, if it works, really impressive Starship rocket. Uh, the company says it is preparing for a final series of tests of what will be the first ever fully reusable super heavy lift launch vehicle. And honestly, you know, if you're a regular listener, you know how I feel about Elon Musk. I am not in any way a fan, but you simply cannot dismiss or decry the work that SpaceX is doing. They are achieving things that governments, that nation states have failed to do. Even the space shuttle was not 100% reusable. So to have a fully reusable rocket ship that is capable of lifting heavy objects into space, not just an achievement, it's an absolute game changer. Now, a lot of things are riding on this. A large part of the Artemis program doesn't work if space, if Starship doesn't work. So, you know, one does have to keep one's fingers very firmly crossed here. And I've got to be honest, I do kind of hate to be rooting for Elon Musk. But that said, credit where it's due. Uh, and in my view, the credit is due to the many, many engineers who work for SpaceX. And I suppose for Elon Musk for organising the finance. There is a popular misconception, which I have to say, Elon Musk does nothing to discourage, that SpaceX is largely funded by Elon Musk. It, in fact, is not. It's largely funded by the US government in the form of um, fees from NASA and grants and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's fair enough. I actually think governments should be funding this kind of research. So I have no problem with it. Particularly, I suppose, if I'm going to be cynical, as somebody who does not pay tax in the US. Yes, hey, it ain't costing me nothing. That said, even the US government does not simply hand out wadges of cash willy-nilly, and Musk has been extremely effective in convincing the US government to give funding to NASA and to SpaceX for the commercial crew program. And yeah, Starship is a product of that program. So yay him, I suppose. Watch this space for updates on Starship. Obviously, as soon as we have a launch date, I will let you know. I am, for one, very much looking forward to seeing this thing go to space. I've watched 
some of the suborbital testing flights they've done. Uh, yeah, atmospheric ones. I don't think this machine's left the atmosphere yet. Uh, some of them are spectacular. Uh, it did have a tendency to blow up a lot at the beginning because you are landing a very big thing that still has quite a lot of fuel on board. But that said, watching these things land, uh, I mean, even the Falcon 9 rockets that um, launch the small stuff, watching them come back down to Earth and land on their tails like, like Thunderbird 3 is just, it still looks like science fiction to me. The fact that SpaceX have cracked this is just incredible to me. Regular listeners will know, I actually don't think it's the best way to, to return stuff to Earth because we've got an atmosphere and parachutes work, but it is still very impressive. So that's most of the space news. That's most of the headlines. Uh, what I'll do now is just go back to our tradition of telling you what's up in the night sky, because we're getting to a point where nights are starting to get lighter. The 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 season where astronomy is easy to do in an, in an evening uh, is beginning to wane. So let's make sure that we don't miss any of the highlights that are coming up. And right now, you've got Venus and Saturn coming very close together, low in the western horizon, just after sunset, with Venus being the brighter of the two dots that you'll see. Both are worth looking at through magnification. Even a decent pair of binoculars will show you Saturn's rings. For a really good look, I would recommend a telescope on a tripod, because at the kind of magnification that gets you a really good look, the slightest movement means that your planet kind of goes streaking out of vision to one side or the other. Uh, if you look above Venus and Saturn, you will find not just Jupiter, but Mars, which will be further to the east. Um, Saturn and Jupiter in particular are always worth looking at. They are quite stunning objects to view through a telescope. Um, Mars, Mars is only really interesting because it's Mars. It's a bit of a red dot, really. Uh, with decent magnification, you can make out some of the very large surface features, like the polar ice caps. But you're not going to get a re any real detail of Mars through a telescope because it's small and very far away. Uh, you have a similar issue with Venus. I mean, Venus is all atmosphere anyway. And un well, what you can see of Venus is all atmosphere. You cannot see through to the ground. Um, and the atmosphere of Venus is not nearly as interesting visually as the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn. There are no stripes. There are no dots. There are no storms. Uh, Venus kind of looks like a big white thing, really, through a telescope. Uh, and so both Venus and Mars suffer when they're in the same bit of the sky as Jupiter and Saturn. Honestly, if you can look at Jupiter and Saturn, why would you look at Venus and Mars? Uh, also, if you're looking at Jupiter in particular, look out for the Galilean moons. You can usually see four. Obviously, if one of them's behind Jupiter, you can't see it because Jupiter's in the way. But you can usually see four, and they show through a telescope as very bright spots of light. You'll not make out any, any features or anything like that. They, they just look like stars. But somehow, for me, they really enhance the beauty of Jupiter. So grab yourself a telescope, borrow one if you can't find one, 
Indeed, if you're really interested, buy one. You can get a fairly decent reflecting telescope that will give you reasonable magnification for about 50 quid, which I know times are tough and 50 quid is 50 quid. But still, you know, it could get you started on a lifelong hobby. At this time of year, you can even find sort of, you know, small refractors and small reflectors that, you know, were intended to, to be sort of Christmas toys. Uh, you can find those very cheaply and even they will get you started. You know, even the magnification that they give you is better than nothing. So, you know, it's not necessarily an expensive hobby to get into astronomy. Although if you want to get really into it, as I'm afraid I can sadly attest, it does start getting a bit dear. But, you know, you don't need to be mega rich to get started, at least. Anyway, that's space. Okay, so that's space. Right, okay, we're going to go into my little rant now. Uh, I'm recording this part of the show about three days after I recorded the rant you're about to hear. I was quite cross, as you might be able to tell. Um, so, whilst I actually stand by everything I said in this, I would like you to filter it through that context, that this is me being cross because of something that had just happened. I was motivated to record this little rant by an interaction that I had online. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't be riled by people on Twitter. I shouldn't even be looking at Twitter. Twitter is a dumpster fire. But there you go. We all succumb occasionally. And I'm afraid I did. I was actually looking for opinions about AI when I came across somebody who was quite viciously verbally attacking a, not a friend of mine, but somebody, somebody that I know, somebody that I've met, somebody whose work I respect. And they took the view that this person, this artist, was in some way evil because they were good at art and that they had somehow got a weird advantage over the rest of humanity because they had this strange gift. Now, I happen to know that they don't have any kind of strange gift. I've watched this person's develop over what more than a decade and you know what originally and this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not naming this person because I, I I really don't need the aggravation but also because I'm about to say this when I first met this person and saw the, the art that they were producing they're a comics artist I told them I liked it and I was just being nice it was god awful and now they are genuinely brilliant and so I've seen over 10 years the work they've put in in order to attain the level of skill that they currently have. I'm sure they will continue to get even better. And this person who was criticising them was saying that it was a God-given right to use my artist friend's artwork to train their AI so that they could draw as well as they could. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that's true. And I told this person that. And I'm not going to tell you what they replied, because this is a family show. Uh, I can tell you that involved uh, a number of anatomical impossibilities and the threat of extreme violence. Uh, and so, as I say, I was cross. So filter the next sort of 10, 15 minutes or so of ranting through that 
lens because honestly, although I was somewhat, I will admit, intemperate, I think might be the word I would use. I do stand by every word. I did mean every single word of it. I might, had I been less annoyed, have worded it differently is the only caveat I will make. Now I think I have contextualised and justified myself quite enough. Just have a listen and see what you think. Okay, so I'm going to talk briefly about AI art and what my issues with it are. Because it's becoming something of a thing. If you hang around on Twitter, which I don't recommend, I really don't, but I know people do, and you follow either artists or people who like to use AI to produce what they refer to as art, and you can see my bias creeping in right at the beginning, you will have seen that the discourse around this subject is getting increasingly heated and increasingly hostile, which is not a thing that makes me happy in the geek space. So, first of all, I am going to say something that will upset some of my artist friends. I have no particular problem with AI art in some circumstances. And I have to be really, really honest now. I am putting, whenever I say AI art, I'm going to keep calling it that because that's what people call it. But when I say AI art, the word art is in very, very heavy air quotes because I do not accept at the moment that AI is capable of producing anything that I would recognise as art. I don't know that that's always going to be the case, but I do know that machines at the moment cannot think and cannot create. I am not saying that that will always be the case, but I am stating as a fact that that is currently the case. And here is my only point of sympathy with the people who are incredibly gung-ho for AI art. In order to create it, a human has to think creatively. As a critic of AI art, I think it would be disingenuous of me to not acknowledge that. Somebody has to tell the algorithm what to do. That means that the person telling the algorithm what to do must have thought creatively about what they want the algorithm to spit out at the end. So I'm going to go that far. Here's where I have the problem. The AI algorithm cannot create. Nobody is claiming that it does. What it does is it it looks at all kinds of images. I mean, we, we are talking millions, probably, of different images and uses those images to produce another image. Now, it is easy to dismiss this as something that's making composites or collages, and I've seen those words used by anti-AI art people. And I think I have to acknowledge that, again, that kind of language is a little bit disingenuous. Something else is happening here, but it is not, I would argue strongly, an act of creation. It's an act of informed copying. And this is the little gap in our in the in our armor that the the pro AI art crowd like to jam their crowbars in and really wrench because on the surface they sort of have a point. What they say is no one's being ripped off here. 
what's happening is the algorithm is basically doing what a human artist does. You know, as a human artist, when you learn to draw, what you do is you look at other artists and maybe are influenced by them. And they take as evidence the many artists who said, oh, yeah, I'm very in influenced by Jack Kirby or I'm very influenced by Steve Ditko or Salvador Dali or whoever. OK, and they also point and I've seen this done actually in comics. They also point at things like homage covers where an artist produces uh, a cover for a comic that is basically a redo of another famous comic cover. And they say, see, that's been fine in art for centuries. Artists have always, let's call it, homaged each other. And, of course, people have also pointed at the works of people like Lichtenstein. And yeah, he said, look, he was taking comic art and essentially enlarging it and putting it out as his own work. And he was claimed as a genius. This is no different. And actually, do you know what? I'll give you that. I actually think the AI art algorithm is very much comparable with Lichtenstein. The thing is, though, for me, that does not help your case because I regard Lichtenstein as a charlatan, a fraud and a thief. Because he was taking other people's work and reusing it without attribution. And that is not OK. It's not OK now. It was not OK then. And it never will be OK. Artists deserve respect. And their work deserves to be respected, and they deserve to be paid when you use their work commercially. So here's another thing. If you use one of the AI art algorithms, I'm not naming any of them, I'm not, not giving them the publicity. But if you use one for your own personal, private enjoyment, because you like to do it, you enjoy trying to figure out what keywords, what prompts you want to put into the algorithm and seeing what you get out. And you like looking at the result. And maybe, maybe, maybe you show your friends what you've done. That I have no problem with. You want to do that, you go for it, mate. OK, as far as I am concerned, I don't see a problem with that. I know some of my artist friends do, but actually I don't. Because for me, that's very much like writing fanfic or doing fan art where you are doing a thing and you're using intellectual property that you do not own, but you're not doing it for money. You're not doing it for profit. You are just doing it for fun and nobody's making money off it. I think that's generally speaking, okay. But when you take images that do not belong to you, that you have not paid for, and you use them to train an AI, to produce work that you are going to charge for, that you are going to use commercially, there I think we have a problem. And I think there, the problem that we have is largely not with individual people. There are always going to be your Lichtenstein-style leeches who are perfectly happy to take other people's hard work, pass it off as their own, and profit from it. But Lichtenstein was just one guy. He was a symptom of the problem that was the lack of respect that art in general had for comic art. Yeah, he was just a good enough self-marketer to be able to convince the art establishment that what he was doing was actually art, while the people he was ripping off was somehow not. He was, you know, he did the whole, oh, it's ironic thing. I'm not going to 
bang on about my hatred of Liechtenstein anymore today. Uh, if you want to know more about what I think about Liechtenstein, uh, I suggest you go back into our archives, uh, uk. click on the blog thing and look for the art rant. That was a Geeks at the Gates COVID lockdown extra episode that I did with the very brilliant hat, who is a proper artist and everything. And it is still, I think, probably the best episode of Geeks at the Gates we ever made. And it's certainly got the best show notes. So take a look at that for more on the loathsome Liechtenstein. But the fact that I'm putting AR, heavy air quotes here, artists, into the same bucket as that plagiarist tells you where I sit, really, on the commercial use of AI art. If you are producing AI art and you are making money from it, you are a thief. If you're an individual making fan art, fine. Honestly, fine. I have no problem with that. But if you are selling that work as your own to a company, or you are buying that art as a company, knowing it has been generated by an AI that has been trained on real artist work, then I have a big problem with that. As do many other people and, indeed, many other companies. There is a lawsuit right now going on between Getty Images, one of the big stock image providers in the world, against one of the companies that produces the software and the algorithms to allow people to make AI art. And Getty Images' point is, hang on a minute, you scraped our database, our, our collection of images, if you like, without our permission or knowledge, and you used that to create something that will make images for profit. So not only have you taken our stuff without asking, you have used it to make money that we're not going to see a share of, and you have set yourself up as a competitor, a direct competitor, to our actual business. And I don't think that's fair. I really don't. And while I'm probably not going to weep that many tears for a big company like Getty Images, lots of small, individual artists are also caught up in this and are also being taken advantage of in this way. And it is, I'm sorry, frankly, wrong. And what boils my blood even more is the attitude of some of the thieves who are doing this. They are trying to gaslight the entire community into thinking that artists, that is to say, people who have worked very hard in order to master their craft and learn to draw well, are somehow gatekeeping and elitist because they possess a skill that the AI art thieves do not. Now, that's nonsense, and it would not stand in any other field of work. I, somebody who loves to run, but for various reasons due to, you know, knees not working very well anymore and stuff, has not kept my training up. Am I to accuse Mo Farah of elitism because he can run further and faster than I can? No, he's a bloody good runner and he worked for it. The same applies to artists. They have worked hard to hone their crafts. Yes, natural ability comes into it. I am sorry if you don't have any. I don't either. I can't draw. I'm a writer. If I want to write a comic, I will have to hire an artist. That's how that works. I'm certainly not going to whine about it and accuse the people who've put the work in of preventing me from accessing my creativity because it's not 
True. It's just a bunch of whiny, entitled tech bros who don't understand the concept of hard work. And I cannot abide it. Uh, and actually, ultimately, that's my problem with AI art. I'm not actually anti this technology. I, I find it fascinating. I find the writing version of this, which actually does directly threaten one of my most important income streams, fascinating too. And I don't object to it as a thing. I don't mind that the technology exists. Only an idiot fights technology. The way this technology is being used, that is the problem for me. And it is the attitude of some of the people who are using it, which is a problem to me. And ultimately, I see the way AI art is currently being presented and the way a lot of people are currently using it as an existential threat to human culture, which may seem like hyperbole, but hear me out. The issue is that AI cannot create. It has to be trained on existing images. Now, a lot of images do exist, but if AI becomes the way that most commercial art is done, that is to say, most of the art that people are paid for is done, that will mean that people are no longer paid because companies will just buy the algorithm and do it in-house. And I can see, actually, commercial reasons for doing that. The problem is if that happens, only rich people will be able to afford to do art. Art is time consuming. I know a lot of people who make money from their art. For most of them, it's not their only job because they don't make enough money from it to sustain themselves. You know, you do not get rich by painting unless you are one of a very small band of very lucky people. The time that artists spend making their art, they need to be paid for that or they can't afford to do it. They'll have to spend that time making money some other way. Now, if AI art becomes the norm, most artists simply stop making art because they will not be able to afford to do it. So yes, you will only have the independently wealthy who can indulge themselves in what will become a hobby. And I can hear the tech bros already saying, oh, boo-hoo, your jobs become obsolete. We're really sorry, but we didn't see you on the barricades for the coal miners, which actually is probably incorrect, because I suspect there were a lot of artists who got involved with all kinds of trade union movements like that. But nevertheless, th th that would be a point. In fact, that probably is a point. But I return you to the fact that this is an, ex an existential threat to human culture, because if nobody's making new art, then there will be no new images to train AI on in this dystopian future that some people would like to see us descend to. And that means that eventually everything will be drawing from the same vat of images that will never be added to, that will never increase, and therefore everything will stagnate. Nobody will be producing new original culture because nobody will be able to afford to do so. I'm sure that what the AI of the future will turn out will be perfectly pleasant. What it won't be is shocking or innovative or vibrant. And we need that. And either we all agree that we're going to support artists or we destroy capitalism or 
we end up with a dystopian future where culture doesn't exist anymore. I, this, this may sound like hyperbole, but those are our three options. If we're going to live in a capitalist society, which, let's be honest, we're going to, can only afford to spend the time learning their craft and making their art if they are paid for that time. Not that they'll petulantly refuse to do it if they're not paid for their time. They simply won't have time to do it if they're not paid for their time. Without artists creating original art, everything stagnates. And just to push this analogy just a little bit further, anything that's stagnant is toxic. Can we use AI as a tool for creating art? Maybe. I'm actually a genuine, and this really is a genuine gut feeling thing. I genuinely don't see the point of it, but I don't see the point of lots of things. People can find a way to use AI to create art in a way that isn't stealing from actual artists and does not destroy the ability of actual artists to make actual, genuine, original art, then fine. And as a technology, I'm sure it will find its place. But the way it's being spoken of right now, frankly, scares me because I'm not joking when I talk about the death of culture. I'm really not. This is a technology that's not going away. Technology rarely does that. The way we use technology that defines who and what we are. And right now, the direction of travel that we are taking this particular technology in is going to cause us huge problems in the future, I think. So we don't need to get all angry about it like I just did. There is no profit or point in simply berating the people who take the opposite view to the one I have just expressed. Just as there is actually no point in the people who do take the opposite view to the one I've just expressed berating me. You ain't going to change my mind by shouting at me, just as I'm not going to change yours by shouting at you. What we need to do is have a good, proper think about what the impact of this technology could be and how this technology would best be used. And I think the big problem, the really big problem with this kind of AI at the moment is that nobody did that thinking, as far as I can see, before they wrote the code. We do not want a future where only the rich can afford to make art. I do not want a future where most art is not made by people. And if you are a machine intelligence listening to this from a thousand years in the future, I don't have a problem with you either. If we can have machines that can actually think and be creative, that would change the situation considerably. But we don't have sentient machines at the moment. We probably never will. And until we do, machines cannot make art. They can take art, and make it into something else, but they cannot actually make art. So at the moment, if you want some art and you do not have the ability to make that art yourself, please go and find an artist, commission them. It's not usually that expensive. You will get something that is truly original and truly unique and actually what you wanted. Actually a little bit bemused that we live in a world where anyone might consider that to be a controversial statement. But hey, that is the world in which we live. And now I am going to stop talking about it before I start frothing at the mouth again. Consider this your boring preachy part for the week.
See? Told you I was cross. I think I kind of dialed it back at the end, though, didn't I? Anyway, as I say, uh, that was me in full-on righteous indignation mode, which is probably more annoying of me than boring and preachy, but there you go. Shall we talk about something more positive? Let's. Let's have a look at some really good comics series that are out right now. Not necessarily issue ones. Uh, There's a few things that I didn't talk about when issue one came out that I think I want to talk about now because as the series has progressed, they've just got better and better and better. The first is one that I will be honest, I did not expect to like. And I really, really do. I was taken aback by how much I liked the first issue when I went issue four. And it is just the gift that keeps on giving. I'm talking about a comic called Junkyard Joe. Now, Junkyard Joe is a robot. And his status as a thing that actually exists is certainly early on in the story not entirely evident. You see, we start in Vietnam when a young soldier meets a robot. A robot who appears to be on the American side and who saves our young soldier's life. In the memory of the young soldier, that robot then works with his platoon and becomes you know, part of the team and then disappears and is never seen again. And there's definitely the impression that we're given that this is some kind of PTSD, uh, trauma, resilience kind of thing. It's, you know, this guy's brain trying to process the horror of what he's seen and the situation that he found himself in. And our young soldier returns to the US and starts writing a newspaper cartoon strip called Junkyard Joe, which features a robotic soldier in a war zone. And, you know, this strip becomes beloved and runs for a long time until the young soldier, no longer young, retires after the death of his wife and the strip is stopped. It's at this point that the real Junkyard Joe comes back into his life, literally just turns up on his doorstep. Is it real? Is he imagining it? Is it his grief at the loss of his wife and his post-traumatic stress disorder? Well, if it is, one or two other people also see Junkyard Joe. Uh, There's a whole little side story of a a family that moves into the house next door to our retired artist who have also experienced grief and are trying to come to terms with their loss. Could that be why they can see Junkyard Joe? Is he real? And who are the strange shadowy people who appear to be searching for Junkyard Joe? What's going on? Why is Joe apparently so afraid? I don't know. I honestly don't know. We're only on issue four. But it is a stunning piece of work. I really, really, really have enjoyed it. Uh, the, the the bits dealing with the comic strip, they channel Charles Schultz, um, they channel Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson, uh, and it it's beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Uh, the characters are nicely drawn, the, the interactions appear realistic, uh, everything is plausible. I believe in these characters. I believe their emotions. It all seems plausible if you suspend your disbelief high enough 
to believe in a robot from the 1960s. And it's got some real heart. It's written by Jeff Johns, who's quite a big name in comics writing, uh, with art by Gary Frank, who is quite a big name in comics illustrating, uh, and uh, colours by Brad Anderson, letters by Rob Lee. And I don't know what the background of any of these people is, but this is a comic that really has a stand to take about the treatment of veterans. The, the back matter in the comic is all about uh, dedicating to veterans of the US Armed Forces. Uh, the adverts that are run in the back of this comic are all for veterans charities. So, you know, this is, this is a, a comic that is not taking the sort of gung-ho, hoorah, take that kind of attitude to soldiering. It's about what happens next. It's about how you cope when you're no longer a soldier and you're no longer in a war zone. Along possibly with some sort of deep state men in black style conspiracy theory. I think that might be where we're headed. I'm going to enjoy the ride. It's really, really good. Uh, each issue is £3.75 from Destination Venus, three fifty if you order it in advance. Other comic shops are available and their prices may vary. Heartily, heartily recommend it. I also heartily recommend The Bulls of Beacon Hill. Issue 1 is out this week. It's written by Steve Orlando, uh, drawn by Andy McDonald, with colours from Lorenzo Sacramella and letters by Carlos M. Manguel. Manguel, I think is how you pronounce that. Sorry, Carlos, if I'm getting that wrong. And uh, this is from Aftershock Comics. Issue one is out this week. That does mean I have to throw in a little caveat here. Aftershock are currently in Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the US, which means they are in pretty severe financial trouble, but they are working to try and get out of that pretty grim financial trouble. I'm mentioning this because this is issue one and it's brilliant. I'll tell you about it in a minute. The caveat is I can't be 100% sure that issue two will ever come out. And I hate to say that because, of course, this gets then to be a bit like a run on the bank. If you think there's no point buying issue one of a comic from a publisher because they may go under and there may never be an issue two, then the revenue stream that selling their comics provides to that publisher dries up. They have no more money coming in, which means their money issues get worse and they go under. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I am choosing to take the risk. I love Aftershock. They have been a fantastic publisher. It turns out financially they may not have been the best organised. And as a result of that, they may not have treated some of their professionals as well as they should have. And I do not condone that. But the books they have put out in the, what, 10 years or so they've been around? have been consistently brilliant. They are the publisher behind Animosity. They are the publisher behind Something Wrong with Patrick Todd. They are the publisher behind Chicken Devil and so many other brilliant pieces of work by fantastic creators. And I wonder if maybe that's how they got themselves in trouble. They might have tried to run a little bit before they could walk. So I choose to support them. If that means I end up with a couple of series that never end, that's going to annoy me in due, due course, but I will take that risk. They are worthy of support. But in all conscience, I need to know that you know that before you decide to commit your hard-earned money 
to the Bulls of Beacon Hill. I recommend you do that. It's a really intriguing story. Basically, we're dealing with the son of a mobster, a truly unpleasant, vicious man. Uh, and the son, we first meet him as a child. Uh, we then jump forward in time and see him. He's a, a doctor, a surgeon. He's handsome. He's politically active. He's making a name for himself. And he's about to take the step into politics. And of course, having a gangster for a father might become an issue at that point. Complication. He's estranged from his father. He doesn't have anything to do with him. He hasn't had anything to do with him for years. He regards himself as having been raised by a single mother. And his father has equally small amounts of time for him because it turns out that our young doctor friend is gay. Or actually, I think it's implied by. But either way, his gangster father does not like this, does not want to be associated with it. And as he sees this young man become increasingly high profile, he thinks that the link might be made between our young doctor friend and the gangster father. And he cannot have that. He believes that having a gay son will make him look weak and he cannot possibly have that. And so he decides to take some steps. Love the characters, love the way they're presented. And I actually like the areas of grey that there are in the hinterlands of some of these characters because they do have them. It's a book about relationships. It's a book about tolerance and intolerance and the compromises that people will make and the extreme to which they will go to protect what they think they've got and to get what they think they want. I am hugely, hugely impressed by it. The artwork is great. It's kind of a kind of a really delicate Spidery would be the wrong word, but it's a very delicate, fine line work. The colouring is excellent. And I really enjoyed it. I really, really hope that Aftershock pull this one off and get the rest of the story out there. I will be rooting for them. And finally, speaking of things we're rooting for, a comic that needs no introduction and, frankly, no help from me. But it's worthy of mention because I have been waiting for this for a while. So it's with great delight that I can tell you that the Mighty Saga is back. The best comic, bar none, currently in print, by Fiona Staples and Brian K. Vaughan. Uh, words by Brian K. Vaughan, pictures by Fiona Staples. Oh my word, we are now on issue 61. We are more than halfway through this sci-fi epic, which ends every story arc by making me sob like a baby it's back i can't tell you about the terrible event that our central characters are recovering from because i don't want to spoiler the previous story arc if you haven't read it yet because at some point in your life if you're lucky you will central character hazel who was a was born in issue one of this comic is now heading into sort of early sort of teenage years certainly sort of late preteen years and the little family that assembles around her which changes as people come in and out of her circle uh, usually because well usually they leave her circle because they're dead this is a book that um if you thought the walking dead was good at killing off major beloved characters walking dead ain't got nothing on saga don't get attached to anybody is the advice i would give you 
Well, Hazel is beginning to make her way in the world with her adopted brother and her mum. They're in fairly bad straits. Uh, they are currently unhoused and still fugitives. They've been fugitives all the way through this series as the governments of the two warring powers in the galaxy both pursue them for mostly at this point just existing. They've been travelling to keep one step ahead of the conflict, but it keeps catching up with them. And now it's difficult for them to travel. So who knows what's going to happen next? Nothing good. Because these people, honestly, if it weren't for bad luck, these people would have no luck at all. Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples seem to take great delight in torturing these poor characters. But it's such a good, compelling read. Fiona Staples' art is sublime. I, I, I don't know how else to describe it. Brian K. Vaughan writes dialogue like a god. He's just sensational at it. So, yay, Saga's back. We're all very happy. All ten volumes are available in collected editions, and I heartily recommend them. You can get them almost anywhere. You can get them at Destination Venus, of course. Uh, you can get them at all good comic shops and most good bookshops, to be fair. I don't think there's anywhere that isn't stocking Saga anymore, because Saga is just that good, and its reputation at this point precedes it. It is actually one of the very few comic series where you can be reasonably sure that if you buy the single issues, they're not going to go down in value. can't really say that with surety about pretty much anything else in comics, but Saga seems to hold up because people want it. I have to say that at this stage, the plot has become so complicated that it's impossible to explain without making it sound really complicated and boring. It is neither of those things, but an awful lot's happened in the, in the previous 60 issues. Uh, the, the short version is two soldiers, a woman from one side of the war, a man from the other side of the war, met when he was taken pr a prisoner of war and she was his prison guard. They fell in love. He busted her out. No, she busted him out. That's how that worked. They married. They had a kid. They are both wanted for desertion, but far worse. The two sides of this war claim that their people are not genetically compatible and Therefore, Hazel, their child, should not exist. Both sides, therefore, want Hazel and her family dead. They will meet with various levels of success as they try to hunt down and kill Hazel and her family. Her parents, however, Alana and Marco, are unbelievably tough and resilient and resourceful and skillful people. And they, and the people they collect around them, protect Hazel brilliantly. So far, at least. It could all go wrong. This is a book about family, about what family means, about love and conflict and cooperation and resourcefulness. It, it's all the good notes. It is a truly stunning piece of work. I think I've only ever recommended it to one person who didn't like it. And believe me when I tell you that for as long as I've owned the shop, I have recommended this to everyone. So that saga, uh, it has gone up. It was, for the longest time, the cheapest comic on the rack. It was $2.75. Um, that's $2.99 in American money. It has finally succumbed and gone up to $3.99, which makes it, in Destination Venus, $3.50 if you ordered it in advance, or $3.75 if you didn't. And you know what? It's worth twice, twice that. It's, it's worth easily double the money you'd pay for most other comics. The level of brilliance that it brings. This isn't hyperbole. This is my honest view. They're not even paying me on nothing. So if you are not currently aboard the Saga train, 
Catch yourself up with the collected editions. They are all available pretty much everywhere. And then grab yourself a copy of 61, because this is a journey you want to be part of. And speaking of trains you want to be on, the Geeking with Destination Venus train is coming into the station. That is a terrible segue. I'm so sorry. But we are nearly out of time. Just time to bring in the Geek Community Notice Board. Uh, there's a few things that I would like to mention at Geek Retreat in Harrogate. Now, look on their social media for all the regular stuff. You know, there's board games on Friday, on Thursday night, Friday night magic on Friday night, alarmingly. And, you know, all of that good stuff. But there's a couple of specific dates I think you might want to drop into your diary this Sunday. That is the 29th of January. Uh, they have Structuring the Day for Success, Low Demand Family Strategies to Improve Mental Health and Get Those Things Done. Actually, the, the, the title doesn't complete. Uh, this could be really useful for some people. You know, being running a family is hard. Life is hard. Mental health is fragile. So get yourself along there, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, uh, for some help figuring out strategies to deal with the stresses of everyday life. For that, on Saturday the 28th, it is the Saturday LGBTQIA plus social at Geek Retreat Harrogate. Uh, I'm not quite sure what time that starts. Half past six, I think. Uh, again, check out the, their social media for that. How long and meet some people? Just a little reminder that... Our friends at the Geek Pub Quiz are not doing quizzes in January. I think they're back in February. As soon as I have some dates, I will let you know. And that's about it for the notice board. If you have a geeky-themed or geeky-related event you would like to plug, just give us a shout. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Tell us what's happening. I will tell other people. There's no charge for that. I just like to share. Info at Destination Venus is also the place to send your comments. Perhaps you disagree with me violently about AI art. I'd like to hear from you. Genuinely, I would. Perhaps there are some things you would like to hear discussed on the show. Perhaps there are some people you would like me to interview. Perhaps that person is you. I don't know. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Let me know. All that remains for me to do is tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production, proudly recorded and moderately engineered in Harrogate. We will be back next week. When we will have the return, I hope, of the wonderful woman of science. Obviously, we skipped that segment this week because I needed space to rant. But I'm all ranted out now. So back to telling you about actually important things next time. Also have all of the other segments and stuff that we normally do. The same geeky mix of news, views and reviews. Although I think for a while I will try and keep the views slightly more under control. Promise. Oh. We will see all of you then. Same time, same listening device. Or, possibly, totally different listening device at a totally different time. It's kind of up to you. This is on the internet, so you are in control. However and whenever you choose to listen, we look forward to seeing you again. Until we do, please, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, stay sane, and stay geeky. Because the world really does need a lot more geeks just like you. Yeah, you. Specifically, you. I'm talking to you. Yes. Yes, don't look confused. You. You're my absolute favourite. As ever, thank you for listening. Your time is valuable. We're grateful you shared it with us. Take care now.